Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome Gary Frankel back to the program. He is a regular Young Voices contributor. And uh, just for the sake of people meeting you for the first time, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me on again, Brian. Uh, My focus with Young Voices and in general is the intersection of education policy in the United States and then American political thought. So I study a lot about school choice, the founding fathers, how they would react to things, how we should be reacting to things, and just how ideas meet policy in general. I'm looking at a piece you wrote for the Dallas Express, A Defense of Public Christianity. And I'm thinking this may be a really timely topic. Tell us just a little bit about what you cover in this in commentary. Yeah, so, I mean, if you paid attention over the past uh, year or so, and especially within the last couple months, there's been this very broad movement among the left to say that everything, every public expression of Christianity is inherently Christian nationalism, which they never bother to define, of course, and that Christian nationalism is intrinsically bad because it has the word nationalism in it, and therefore it's people. And I wanted to sort of contextualize what the real relationship between Christianity and American political thought is and how Christianity, whether you are a Christian or not, has, and I'm not, has objectively had a very positive impact on the American political experiment. Boy, that's a that's a take on history we're not hearing much these days. You know, to I mean, in, in the new version of history where we, we basically throw out whatever good there was and just only look at, well, they had slaves and they were wrong here and wrong there. We're, we look at only the negative stuff. But tell me some of the positive things that Christianity or its influence contributed to American society as it, as it grew. Well, you bring up slavery and that's the perfect example um, a lot of political thinkers in the late Enlightenment, which is when the United States was founded, um, opposed slavery on moral grounds, but they weren't very effective in actually getting slavery abolished because there are many other political considerations at play. The southern states were virulently opposed to it. But if you look at the situation on the ground, it was Christians who were driving the abolitionist movement. And they are rooting many of their arguments in Christianity. This idea that we are all equal by nature, I mean, of course, you can make a modern scientific argument for it, and very reasonably so. But that idea originally comes uh, from religion and that we are all equal under the eyes of God. And that was the argument that abolitionists used in order to fight against slavery and eventually were successful in that effort with the passage of the 13th Amendment. And even after that, Christianity was also uh, the basis for much of the civil rights movement. And I think a lot of people forget that Martin Luther King Jr. was Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And many of his early speeches about civil rights were in churches. And, And there's a reason for that. And it's a history that's important that I think a lot of people have been forgetting. Okay, help me distinguish, too, between um, clearly when, when the founders of, of, of this nation set about setting up a system, a system of governance, they did not want a theocracy. How did they strike that balance between allowing the Judeo-Christian, um, you know, 
the the ethics of the Judeo-Christian traditions to still influence society without codifying it in government. Well, you have this really interesting contrast in some of the many and some of the prominent founding fathers. Uh, in my article, I talk about Thomas Jefferson. I talk about James Madison. I talk about John Adams. I talk about Thomas Paine. All of them had very different religious views. Um, Jefferson, Paine were pure deists. Um, James Madison, John Adams kind of straddled the line a little bit. And then you had Orthodox Christians, not Orthodox in the sense of Orthodox Christianity, but mainline Protestant believers like Roger Sherman, Patrick Henry. But something that they all agreed on is that the moral code that you find in Christianity was a good moral code and that it would be healthy for the nation from a social perspective to be founded on that moral code. So when Thomas Jefferson talks about the wall of separation between church and state, he's not talking about protecting the state from the church. It's the opposite. He's talking about protecting the church from the government so they may preach the gospel and create a moral society without them getting enthralled in politics. And, and that's the real separation of church and state that is no longer being recognized. And I think that's I think that's a problem. Okay, I got to get your take on this, Gary. Um, I know that uh, there are there are strong objections anytime someone perceives that uh, anything of the Judeo-Christian origin is being imposed on the public. What? Prayer at a high school graduation? That's imposing on us and so forth. Yet, wokeness is a religion in many respects. I mean, it it, it has dogma. It proselytizes. It's it's pretty jealous of, of other systems of belief. Um how come they don't get any pushback you know, on, as far as imposition? Because it really seems like you want to talk about imposing. That's that's where the, the force is being used. Well, it's it, I can definitely see the argument that it's starting to become um, a secular religion if yes. it isn't yeah. one already. And I think it's founded on scientism. And, and it's this notion that science, science, exclamation point capital S has this very particular dogma. So instead of a process of discovery about the world, it becomes an accepted canon. And although there may be minor changes and alterations to the canon, if you question science, you are wrong. You are a non-believer, no matter what evidence you have. And it's being used as a cudgel against a lot of different aspects of modern society. I mean, pretty much everything they don't like, they're going to use those scientism-based explanations in order to push back against it. And so you're right, it really is functioning as a religious belief in some way, but since the word God isn't involved, it's treated completely differently. Good explanation. Thank you. I noticed in the historical examples you use of where, uh, particularly the Christian influence, you know, could be felt in in movements or things that shaped, you know, American history. Um, it's it's very telling that in each case there was a higher moral authority that was appealed to than the state. For instance, in the case of slavery, it wasn't just because, well, you know, the law says it's okay. They were saying no matter what the law says, this is still wrong. 
And I'd love to get your take on, uh, are people concerned that, to, that we have a competing moral authority with the state? Is that what, uh, you know, for instance, scientism, would it view the state as perhaps the highest level of moral authority? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Some people, I don't really know how, have gotten the idea that the government is the highest moral authority and it's the government that decides what is right and wrong in society. And a bad government or an ineffective government is one that doesn't take care of its citizens. And in some ways, it's this very old sort of paternalistic ideal that goes back to Plato, but they're interpreting it in a very, very different way. So there is no moral authority other than what their desires are or what the government says. But what you realize is that when you have large-scale social advances in the United States and real progress into all humans being seen as equal, it's coming from appealing to some higher moral authority, whether it's God, whether it's nature, whether it's something else. It just has to be higher than the state and higher than ourselves. Yeah, it really seems like you can bring it back. And I think this is not true just with Christianity, but with most every major religion in the world has some version of treat others the way you would want to be treated. Yeah, the, the golden rule appears, appears in so many different cultures for a reason. I think it's something innate to human nature. And whether that comes from God or evolution or some mix of the two, that's up to you. But the moral outcome is, I think, the same. So we got about a minute left here, Gary. Um, what's the takeaway when we talk about uh, public Christianity? We're not talking about a guy with a bullhorn necessarily standing there, you know, yelling a sermon at you as you're driving by. What does it look like? I think it means understanding where exactly our morals and our values come from and how those values have been impactful throughout history. I'm not telling people to become Christians. I'd be a hypocrite because I'm, I'm not religious myself. But I would ask that people critically examine why beliefs are the way they are, because the history is important. No, I, I would agree. And I, I, lo I love your article. It's, it's refreshing to see somebody defending this instead of looking for another reason. And say, yeah, there's another reason, America, and everything that came before was, was wrong. <laughs> so thanks, thanks for shining some light on a part of our history we need to know. Where can people follow you? Where can they follow your work? Um, I'm most active on Twitter. It's just at Frank Olgarian. I'm always commenting and posting stuff on there. So that's definitely the best way to get in touch with me. All right. Thanks so much for being our guest. Thanks for having me, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with the Young Voices. Hey, we are happy to uh, welcome to the show Callum Payton. Did I say that right? You got it. You <laughs> still, got it. Still second Thank guessing you. myself. Uh, Callum, <laughs> I, actually, I think we've had you on the program before, correct? Yes. Yes, that's right. A few months for, ago. For those who are meeting you for the very first time, tell us just a little bit about who you are. Yes. Yeah, so um, I am a graduate of history and politics from Warwick um, University over here. I'm just finished studying law as well, about to um, about to move into a legal career, and I'm also the managing director of a, um, a non-profit media organisation that um, 
that sort of aims to to teach younger people about politics. And that's called The Speaker. Well, I'm looking at an article you wrote for International Policy Digest. Americans should be wary of the GOP's commitment to America. I remember the contract yes. with America. I was a young man, yeah. but I, I remember it very well. <laughs> uh, talk to me about what is this commitment to America? For people who are not familiar with it, what exactly is the GOP promising or committing to? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the contract for America was a bit before my time. It was um, four years before I was born, actually. But um but um, it was very similar to what the approach is now, and that's essentially um, very vague in policy terms, but quite clear in overall goals. Um, essentially, plan of what the GOP, if they were to win the majority in Congress, want to do, and and that is mostly tax cutting, deregulation, um, are the sort of main pillars, and then sort of moving on from that are things. Um, you know, more specific policy about what they want to do around healthcare and climate change and things like that. But in terms of actual detail, it's quite light. It's mostly a manifesto of um, tax cutting, deregulation, and um, sort of we'll get to the detail once we win that majority sort of thing. Now, I understand there were some very important lessons that the U.S. could draw Mm. from some of the things that you have gone through recently in the U.K. Let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, the Prime Minister, Liz Truss, was Prime Minister for a very, very short time. What is the story there? She was in, and then she had moved on. Yeah, exactly. So, she only lasted 49 days, and um, in a way, so... We obviously had the resignation of Boris Johnson uh, early in the summer this year. We then had a very long and protracted leadership contest, um, about eight weeks. And throughout that, Liz Truss was spouting the entire time throughout her campaign of low tax deregulation as the way forward for economic growth in this country. Um, Which, of course, is not a unique point of view. That's the point of view that generally... Um, our Conservative Party and obviously the Republican Party in the US hold. And obviously, you know, it's a, it's a noble thing wanting to put more money in people's pockets and have the government less involved in their lives, except from the fact that that's not always the right approach. There's not always the circumstances in the wider economy to make that feasible. So we had her throughout the campaign in a similar way to the Commitment to America plan, giving very little detail about what that actually means but a lot of sort of rhetoric on how um on yeah her, her more general plans um we also had throughout that campaign the man that is now our prime minister um rishi sunak saying that it was a disastrous plan that it was all unfunded it was um a bit worrying that it was sort of being driven by ideology but there wasn't really that much thought about the current economic situation in the uk and um, and eventually it came to pass that when she when she won that election, she implemented those tax cutting plans in this mini budget that she um, that she and her chancellor cooked up together. Within a matter of hours, all the markets were spooked because there was no kind of suggestion of where this money would come from, how they were going to pay for these tax cuts. There was also no oversight from independent bodies that were usually when a government's going to produce their budget, overlook the whole process and say, this is the likely impact on the markets. They did away with that. They just allowed um, no oversight whatsoever and just pushed ahead with their plans, largely because I think they were worried about what the forecast would tell them. And um, obviously, it's quite a similar situation in the US. We've got quite vague tax-cutting deregulation plans being put forward by the GOP 
but there's you know very little substance and very little idea of how that would be paid for because the whole global economy at the moment is suffering we've got obviously the war in ukraine is affecting us here in europe a lot more than it's affecting you guys over in the states um because our energy prices are far more reliant on what's happening in in russia but um we're also seeing really high interest rates we've had ours rise from around one percent earlier this year to now about 2.25 and i know that yours are even higher again at 3.25 i think um so you're really looking at a situation where it's not the right circumstances to be trying to pursue this kind of policy these are the sort of policies that you need to pursue once you're already in a strong position once you're at once your economy is on sound footing, that's when you cut your taxes, reduce your regulations, and hopefully put more money into people's pockets and make them more well off. But if you do that at the wrong time, well, you risk having a situation like we've had here, where the markets are spooked, the cost of government borrowing goes up massively. You then all of a sudden have to start cutting a lot of public spending, and then you're making some of the worst off in society even more worse off. And I think that it's a pretty clear lesson um, to the United States that sometimes being driven by ideology on these matters is not the way to go. You need to really pay attention to what's happening in the markets, really pay attention to the global economy and the wider economic factors and base your policy on that, not purely on ideology and what you want the situation to be. Callum, is there any way that governments, and I mean any governments who are um, spending you know, and I mean, really spend like here in the U.S., we're, we are seeing mm. it's beyond exorbitant in terms of the amount of money that's being spent. All of that has to mm. it's, it's being borrowed. It has to be paid back at some point. Is there ever a time when uh, when it's acceptable to, to cut the spending, knowing we're all going to feel the pain, but that adjustment has to take place I, I, from what you're describing? I get their concern, but it seems like that's a can that could be kicked down the road indefinitely uh, by politicians yeah. just saying, but look, someone will suffer if we if we cut this spending. But at some point, it, it really yeah. needs to, to be slowed or well, stopped, maybe. Yeah, well, this is the, the, the situation that we're in at the moment is that we were facing a situation where we realistically probably had to reduce spending. We probably had to increase taxes, except we had this 49 day period where Liz Truss was the prime minister that made the situation far worse. And so with all these unfunded plans that have made government borrowing far more expensive, the cost of government spending far more expensive, we're now in a situation where the tax cuts have to be significantly higher and the public spending cut, oh, sorry, the tax rises have to be significantly higher and the public spending cuts have to be significantly deeper. So it's not about whether it's the right policy or whether you know we're spending too much generally. It's that there are economic realities that have to be listened to a lot of the time. And I think that that's something that has been quite clear in the UK in that ignoring these economic realities for that 49 day period has meant that these spending cuts are now far, far more deep than they would have been and these tax increases are going to be far larger than they would have been. If we'd taken a more prudent approach and thought, okay, this isn't the right time to reduce taxes, or this is not the right time to cut public spending on the most or the least well off, we might have been in a much better position now where over the coming years, as we start to move on from this financial crisis, we can reduce those taxes, we can increase that public spending, and we can make sure that our economy is on sounder footing. 
And I think that's the the main lesson here, the main legacy to take from that 49 days in UK politics is that there may be a method to what you're trying to do. However, you really do have to pay attention to what's happening in the wider economy if you want to succeed in the policies that you're trying to implement. I appreciate your explanation. For people who are looking to follow your work, if they want to follow you on social media, for instance, where can they find you? Yeah, so on my Twitter, my handle is um, Peyton underscore Callum, and that's, I think, the same across all of my social media. So if you want to find me in any of those, it's that. And if you want to read any more of my writing, that's that's there as well. And um, also have a look at Speaker Politics, because that's where a lot of my writing is written. And... Um, yeah, you can get get a good insight into a lot more of what I've written over there. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, have a have a safe and warm and hopefully affordable winter. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. You too. We'll see you. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Cody Wisniewski back to the program. Cody, I know some folks are meeting you for the first time. Tell us who you are. Tell us what you do. Absolutely, Brian. Thanks for having me. So I'm Cody Wisniewski. I am a senior attorney for constitutional litigation with Firearms Policy Coalition, and I am also a contributor with the Young Voices program. Fantastic. I'm looking at an article you did for The Federalist, and this caught my attention. Banks and credit card giants just greenlit a plan to track your gun store purchases. I'm already a little on the edge about uh, central bank digital currencies and just some of the meddling with PayPal and other you know, uh, payment platforms, but talk to me about this idea to start tracking gun store purchases. Where did that originate? Oh, wow. Where did it originate? Um, It's originated in the mind of of gun control advocates, really. Um, This idea that, so just to kind of step back to set the stage a little bit, all of your debit and credit purchases are all tracked um, and they're all coded. They're coded using this, for the most part, using an international standard system, um, which is established by this, this organization. They are coded based on where you buy them. So the goods themselves aren't coded. What's coded is if you buy it at Walmart, it's coded as general merchandise. Um, If you buy something somewhere else, it'll be coded as somewhere else. And so those codes will follow those transactions. Now, gun stores have always been coded as general merchandise, and they've just been treated as just another purchase. It's just another item. It's just another tool. Gun controllers in an attempt to try and get more and more data on on gun owners and, and more information about what they're buying, have pushed for this, this new code to be established by the international community and then adopted. And that's what just recently happened. So they have established a new, the International um, Standardization Organization has established a new code uh, for United States gun stores and any items purchased at that will now be coded as purchased at a gun store. And this code has been adopted by all of the major credit card um, processors. Visa, MasterCard, and Amex have all adopted the code as well. Okay, so is there a bright side or an upside to to this proposal? 
I mean, I, tell me, what does or what doesn't this track? I mean, it does it does it track individual firearms? Does it track accessories, ammo, that kind of stuff? It does not track any of that individual information. So there is a good side and a bad side to this. Um, the good side is that the effect of it has certainly been overblown in the media. The all the code will track is if you buy something at a coded merchant. So let's mm. say you go to Jim's gun store around the corner, you buy a t-shirt that will be coded as a gun store purchase. So realistically, they're not getting any data that they didn't already have as to what you're buying, how much of it you're buying. All they can see is this store that you bought it from is coded as a gun store and you spent X number of dollars. So the the information provided is is very minimal the problem is what are the people that are advocating for this code and that are going to be using this code going to say that the information means and that's what's more concerning and that's what i think people should really focus on data can be very dangerous you know accurate data can be dangerous when it's ascertained over a long period of time and they have a lot of data about somebody or about you What's even more concerning here is when people claim that the data says something that it doesn't. And a lot of gun control activists are claiming that this is the first step into identifying dangerous purchasing trends. First, I don't know what a dangerous purchasing trend is. There's there's no information on how somebody who is going to use firearms to commit a crime purchases differently than somebody who doesn't. Um, and Moreover, there's no actual information in that data that would identify what they're purchasing. So would a dangerous purchasing trend be somebody that spends, I don't know, $100 a week at a at a coded merchant? Well, they could be buying coffee. Every, every gun store in America these days seems to sell coffee. Uh, it's become the new thing, I guess. So you could be going and getting your, you know, your beans and a T-shirt from the the gun store once a week. And that's right. It's that's... a twelve hundred dollar T-shirt, honey. Honest. <laughs> I tell my wife. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. It could be a twelve hundred dollar safe. Right? right. I mean, there are really expensive purchases that aren't guns or ammo. So if they're trying to identify if these people are trying to identify gun purchases, this doesn't do that. And if they try and say it does, that's when the data becomes really dangerous. Yeah. And here's the quandary that I'm sure you have considered here, too. OK, so it's not exactly it's not government that's really keeping track of this. But at the same time, the companies that are doing this, in this case, the credit card companies or banks, it seems like they're in partnership or at least in in lockstep in some ways with government. Am I seeing something that's not there? You, I think you're seeing a little bit of what concerns us uh, and what concerns everybody. So as of right now, that bridge does not exist. That bridge between this data and the government, unless obviously an agency went to Visa, MasterCard, Amex and said, hey, we want this data, you know, potentially with a warrant, depending on what the data is. You know, there's a whole other problem there on whether or not they need a warrant for it, if Visa will voluntarily disclose. But skimming over that. That direct pipeline doesn't necessarily exist yet on a national level. And that's where people should really remain cautious of, of what this looks like. So people are right to come back and push back against the narrative saying, look, this code doesn't really say anything. It doesn't really do anything. We don't need to freak out over the code uh, itself all that much. But what we should watch for is where are these governments trying to build bridges between that data and government investigations or government data collecting? 
there's a few states that have already shown this, right? New York is now trying to look at social media data in order to grant permits for firearms. California has taken a, a you know a multi-prong approach where they license the person, they license the firearm, and they license the seller. So now they they have all the data pieces that they can put together. So it's not like this is some dystopian reality that exists in a far <laughs> off world or in some, you know, uh, uh, fiction title. This is happening in states that are already working on this. So you are, uh, I hope, not reading the tea leaves, but you are certainly recognizing something that we, we really do need to remain vigilant about. And that is not allowing governments to draw that or to build that bridge between this this data and what they would potentially assume that it might say. It seems like this also is opening a door to the possibility of ESG type stuff where a social credit score uh, could come into play. Any does that uh, sound plausible at all to you or is that is that another angle from which this this could potentially be misused? Absolutely. Uh, I think Visa, in fact, came out and specifically said, you know, we don't make judgments based on what people are buying as long as it's legal. All we're doing is, you know, conducting our business and and facilitating purchases. Uh, And when you have to come out and say that, (laughs) maybe there's a little bit of concern on what's going on behind the scenes. So, yeah, I mean, one big concern here is once all these merchants are coded and once all these purchases start going through, what are banks going to do in response? Are banks going to start to say, well, you can't use my credit card at anything that's coded this way? Are they going to start you know, watching those, those purchases? And, and there are a lot of concerns with how this could play out. Uh, and so I don't think that that's, that's ill-placed. I think that is, is dead on. You know, that follows in this kind of um, you know, woke financial institution shift that we're starting to see. So definitely another uh, important point to keep vigilant on. And again, that's why it's really concerning about the difference between what this data actually says and what people are saying it's going to say. Because if a bank is going to look at that and say that we're not going to let you buy firearms, so we're going to stop people from buying at merchant, at places that are coded that way, that is not what the data is telling them. And so those are kind of your your key takeaways. So know what the data actually says. Uh, watch for when government tries to build bridges to get this data, and then watch those those private actors. I mean, privatized gun control is becoming a reality in our world. Uh, and just because it might not be constitutionally regulated doesn't mean that we don't need to keep a close eye on it and remain ever vigilant. Are there places where people can can be heard on this matter, or is this something that just takes place in, in corporate boardrooms and, I don't know, maybe regulatory meetings that are just far away from the, the average public? Some of it's voting with your dollar, right? Some of it is is doing business with people who don't hate you for what you do or what you believe in or what you're willing to buy or not buy. Some of it also will be occurring at the state level. Some states are probably going to set protections in place so that their state cannot leverage this data. And that, you know, I can see happening in, in multiple places. Some states have already been very familiar towards, or sorry, very um friendly towards ensuring that people can exercise their right to self-defense. And so watching for those things to move through in your state or pushing them forward in your state, you know, those are all things that people can do. Okay, again, we are talking with Cody Wisniewski. He's a senior attorney for the Constitutional for Constitutional Litigation with the Firearms Policy Coalition, as well as a Young Voices contributor. And it looks like actually you wear a lot of hats, Cody. Where can we follow you on social media? 
So yeah, you can follow Firearms Policy Coalition uh, at Gun Policy on most of our um, most of our socials, or go to uh, firearmspolicy.org and see our work. You can follow me at The Wizard of Laws with a Z on just about every social platform. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Hey, I'm happy to welcome Finesse Moreno Rivera back to the program. Um, I got to tell you, your voice or your name is very easy to remember, too. So I was like, oh, she's back. For those who are meeting you for the first time, though, Finesse, would you tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do? Thank you so much for having me again. So I am a criminal justice reform expert, as well as an expert within data analysis. Um, my expertise ranges from working with the federal government, such as the FBI, all the way to our localities, such as the D.C. police departments, as well as departments within Massachusetts. Now, I'm looking at an article that you've written about, uh, despite police reform efforts, police keep killing people. I admit, I have not been as tied to the headlines here lately, but has, has this been a year where we have seen uh, an increased uh, number of, of police shootings, you know, compared to the, the past couple of years? Unfortunately, yes. Yes, there has been an uptick. And, you know, as I point out within my article, you would think that there would be a lot more movement for police reform, specifically after George Floyd's death. However, what we're seeing is that there is an uptick in nonviolent shootings, uh, killings from police, and unfortunately, that's heavily driven by traffic violations. Wow. So, I, I, this is a touchy subject because for some people, it's going to sound like, well, you're saying get rid of the police, isn't it? But when we talk about reforming police, let's let's talk about some what what does that mean in terms of when we talk about reforming how police do what they do. What are, what are some of the likely areas that uh, that our efforts are best focused on? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I appreciate you bringing that up because I was very proud of this piece because to me, this subject needs to be more front and center for police reform because what we're seeing is a lot of and what you do here, right? Defund police, which I personally don't agree with. Um, obviously, you want to allocate funds differently. That's okay. I know it's catchy for media purposes, but that's not what we're really looking to do. Um, so far, there's been over a thousand pieces of legislation across 47 states that have put forth some type of police reform, whether that's allocating, quote unquote, defunding the police, um, allocation to other resources, such as um, looking at other first responders to assist police. Or also a very few states who have traffic violation protocols. But, you know, to me, this really does stand out for police reform. And why it's so important is because we really can drive bipartisan support for this, because not only are we putting American citizens' lives at risk, we are also putting our officers' lives at risk just for the fact of money um, given these traffic violations. Okay, I'm going to state this one way. You correct me if it needs to be stated, but what you're describing <laughs> sounds a lot like um, we we limit police interaction with the public by having the police focus on the things where we really need, you know, someone to to preserve the peace, to defend somebody, to to investigate and bring someone to justice for a crime. But for instance, you mentioned uh, you know minor traffic violations; those things can be important, but are they as important, you know, to put that officer? In at risk, you know, as well as you know the person. Um, 
how did how did the police organizations how does law enforcement respond to this would they rather be focused on the the heavier things and and less on the well you didn't signal for two seconds before you changed lanes kind of stuff i i believe so i think that you know i would hope and from a lot of um feedback that i've received as well as articles i have read that police would really you know prefer to be putting their efforts towards you know, better patrolling, looking after their communities. What we're seeing is policing for profit here and for lives, and it's definitely not okay. Um, and what makes it very difficult for them, and I know, I know for me, you know, when I was, you know, a, a new, a new driver, and I'm, I'm sure many of the listeners right now can remember thinking, oh wow, it's the end of the month, police have quotas, and I always thought that was not true, and in fact, it is absolutely true what they are you know they're they're giving incentives right now to even pull people over and um that's not that's again it's putting them at risk it's putting drivers at risk and it it puts them in this limbo that's truly just not fair well and it it puts the public's trust in kind of an interesting situation uh and, and i've had police officers tell me this when they're in another jurisdiction and they see a police car behind them in the rearview mirror they worry and it's, it's because they don't know, is this a place where, you know, is it a speed trap? Is this where we, you know, farm a little revenue from the folks passing through? So that's, that's kind of a neat, or it's kind of an interesting admission. What are some of the other areas, uh, are, for instance, de-escalation? I, I know that uh, some people take that, well, what are you going to do? Send a social worker to every, you know, every altercation or every disturbance. But um, it seems like sometimes... Police can be very quick to escalate a situation um, to where suddenly it becomes a deadly force situation. Absolutely. And, you know, just to take a step back to we think about training, right? So we look back on um, shootings with police. We look back on George Floyd. We look back, back at these things where, okay, well, better training, better training. You have to think, especially with a traffic stop, and especially for a reason why you're like, okay, I'm just going to, for a police officer's perspective, I'm going to pull this person over for a minor infraction, or as my article outlines, looking at the data, you know, a lot of times we don't even know why they're pulling someone over because due to the fact that that information is not released by the police department themselves or even the media that is reporting it. So they put themselves at risk by pulling these individuals over. And it's just, it's definitely gotten out of control in a sense that, you know, they don't know what they're walking into. So, and, you know, just take a step back as well. There is no standardization across the U.S. for police officers when it comes to traffic violations. We also have to take into account, you know, the lack of communication depending upon, you know, the individual's race, their age. There's so much that goes into this that it really does make you take a step back and think, oh, my God, why are we not doing anything about this? So who are, who are the leading voices in, in police reform right now. I know there are many people who are interested in it, but if they wanted to help, you know, put their, their effort and their support behind somebody, who are the ones who are leading out right now? So I would definitely look towards, and what I saw was absolutely wonderful, um, is the National Association of Black Law Enforcement. They actually go out to their communities when requested and say, hey, we can help you with, um, thinking about and even training these citizens about how to interact with police, but also how to interact with them 
um, whenever they are stopped in traffic violations. I think that it's an amazing way to put forth an issue that we don't talk about enough. And, you know, just to really take that idea and make it more widespread. I think that there also should just be a national campaign for traffic stop awareness. Why are we not putting this information out there? Why are we not allowing our new drivers for that to be some type of protocol for them to learn how to interact with an officer when stopped? Um, I think that's that's very, very important also for them to know their rights. I think it's also important for officers to understand what they're walking into as well. Um, so, I, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's time for us to stop <laughs> incentivizing traffic violations and putting lives before money. Well, and I, I'm. this is kind of an off-topic, but at the same time, civil asset forfeiture, I know, is another area where, when I hear reform, you know, this is this is a topic that comes up. Do you have any thoughts on, on the practice of, you know, seizing large amounts of money, you know, considering the money to be guilty, and then making someone prove to, that, that it's, you know, legally obtained in order to get it back? Oh, absolutely. And that's and like what you just said. That's a whole nother topic. <laughs> But I think that it definitely feeds into the fact and the idea that as motorists, you need to know how to, excuse me, know your rights, but also how to communicate those effectively to an officer when you are pulled over for a traffic violation, or even if you don't even know why you've been pulled over, as we can see by reading my article. And where will your article be published? I'm very excited to announce that it's going to be published in USA Today. Nice. And then after its publication, yes, I will be uh, sharing it on my Twitter feed at Sinesh Marino. And then also I like to share my articles um, via LinkedIn at Sinesh Marino Rivera. All right. I appreciate that you're taking on this subject and understand it. This can be kind of a volatile one because I, I don't find a lot of people in, in the kind of that lukewarm area of, well, you know, I think the police are mostly good or most. I mean, people seem to have drawn some pretty hard lines between, you know, the, they're they're doing us a, a selfless, you know, favor versus I'm more scared of them than I am, you know, the, the gang in my neighborhood. Um, where can people follow you again on social media? Absolutely. I can be followed at S. At Finesse Marino at Twitter, and then also at Finesse Marino Rivera on LinkedIn, and of course at Young Voices. All right. Thank you so much, Finesse. It was good to catch up with you again. You as well. Take care.